Good morning, family. We're going to be in Romans chapter 13 this morning, if you'll go ahead and turn there. And I've heard a couple nervous chuckles, so let me uh, preface what I'm about to say. Um, By and large, here at Redemption Hill, we will walk through large portions of Scripture. Um, We've been a church. This is our third year as a church. Um, And if you want to talk about the kind of progress that we've made through Scripture, uh, we preached through the whole book of Luke, or the whole book of Galatians, the whole book of Luke, and now one chapter's worth of Ephesians in three years. If that gives you any kind of an idea of our commitment to expositional teaching and, and teaching through the Bible a verse at a time, that's, that's our ongoing commitment. Um, there are certain times uh, based on what's going on in the body, uh, in the family, in the church body, that we may decide to pause what we're doing and working our way through particular books of the Bible to do series on what it means to be the church, what, it, what the organizational structure of our church is, to teach on things like missional community and what it means to be the body of Christ together in the world today. Um, there was uh, a time that we did a one-off uh, day where we gave sort of our manifesto on the SCOTUS decision um, that came as a result of the Obergefell um, decision with the Supreme Court of the United States. And so there are times that from the pulpit we are called to speak prophetically into the culture, to speak prophetically into the church body, and uh, I believe that today is one of those days. Um, Here in just a couple of days, um, our country is going to make a decision um, on who they want to be the next president of the United States. Um, it is not my purpose or my goal or my desire today to say anything that would implicitly or explicitly try to um, cause you to vote for somebody. That's not why I'm here, and that's not what this is. Um, This is not about party politics. This is not about... um, anything like that. If it was, if I did do that, this would be the outcome for me. I would have to, uh, together with our other elder, uh, begin to um, exercise church discipline on anybody who didn't vote the way that we thought to. That would be ridiculous, okay? And that's not what we're about. Do you follow how those two things are related? Like if we were going to say, this is who you should vote for, and then we come along, if you didn't, we'd we'd have to exercise church discipline over that. That's not what we're here to do. So hopefully that allows you to breathe easy. Um, I have my own personal, deeply seated convictions about life and liberty and the pursuit of happiness. Um... I have my own deeply seated convictions about how the Constitution should be interpreted and what things biblically we should be voting for. Um, That's not my purpose either in being here this morning behind the pulpit is to proclaim what I think about American politics. What I am called to do, however, is to teach from the Word of God what the Word of God says about the nature of the state, about the nature of, and when I say state, I mean like the state in general, government. And some people want to divide politics and theology. But the reality is is that politics are theological. In fact, everything in life is theological. And if we are going to understand our call as Christians in the world today, we need to understand a God-centered view of politics rather than a man-centered view of politics. Um, So again, let me state, it is not 
my desire explicitly or implicitly to somehow encourage you to vote one way or another if you haven't already. It's not my desire today to get you to uh, glory in the vote you may have already cast or um, be depressed over the vote you've already cast. That's, that has nothing to do with what today is about. What today has to do with the... Uh, what today has to do with is the fact that we are citizens of a different kingdom living in exile who are loyal to our one and only king. And in our loyalty to our one and only king, he has called us to behave in a certain way when it comes to our sojourn in exile here in this place now. So that's why we come to today. Um, today will be a one-off deal. Um, and then we have about three weeks before we enter the season of Advent. And so we are probably going to pause Ephesians until the new year. And so um, we're going to do today, Romans 13, God and government. Uh, we'll have a couple of weeks where, where we'll, we will preach um, as the Lord leads. Um, we'll enter into the season of Advent and, and um, the Advent season, and then we'll pick up Ephesians chapter 2 uh, beginning in next year. Okay? We're going to read this morning from Romans 13. Is everyone with me on that? I want to make sure that we're together on that. Okay. We're going to begin Romans 13. Uh, we're going to read verses 1 through 7 together. A little piece of liturgy that we practice here at Redemption Hill is after we have uh, read the main text uh, for the morning, uh, we say this is the word of the Lord, and we invite everyone to say thanks be to God. Romans 13, verse 1. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes, for the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, and honor to whom honor is owed. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Two things I want you to see right from the beginning is that right in the first couple of verses, it says, actually in verse 1, it says, let every person be subject. So the very first thing that we see here in Romans chapter 13 is that the call for us as believers is to actually be in submission to the governing authority over our lives. That is a biblical mandate. It's a biblical call. Let every person be subject. So we're called to be in subjection, and Paul doesn't let anybody off the hook. He says, let how many? Let every person, all without distinction. Let all without exception be subject to the governing authority. And then it says what? For there is no authority except from God. Um, I would encourage you to walk through every one of these verses, to meditate on them in the coming days and weeks ahead, because there are many implications for us. How many times does Paul say, therefore, in just those seven texts? There's, there's many implications for us. But most simply today, I want you to grab those two. That we are all called to be in submission to the governing authority over us. And number two, that there is no authority except from God. Primarily, what this means for us is that God is sovereign over all government. 
God is absolutely sovereign over all government. That means no matter who wins an election, God is the one who's sovereign over placing them in that office. No matter who uh, is born and becomes king over a nation, God is sovereign over the placement of that royal figure. God is sovereign over all government. That means that there are no surprises for him. There is no such thing as a second Tuesday in November in the history of the United States where God has thrown up his hands and said, are you kidding me right now? I mean, come on, I just can't believe it. In the history of the United States, that has never happened, and it will never happen as long as the United States is a nation and long after it ceases to be a nation. God will, has never been and will never be surprised as to who becomes the next leader of the United States. And that applies not just to the chief executive officer of the United States. That applies to every single lesser magistrate falling underneath him all the way down to mothers and fathers who exercise authority in their homes. Why? Because there is only one person in the universe whose authority is inherent, and that's God. God is the only one who in and of himself, because of who he is, possesses authority which means that all other authority under God has been granted that authority by God. And as such, God is sovereign over every form of government, from national to state to local to the very governing authority in our homes exercised by mothers and fathers. The dog catcher roaming the streets and collecting stray dogs only has authority because it's been granted by God. You as a parent only have authority because it has been granted by God. And then it extends all the way to the top. All the way to the very top. The chief governing officers of our nation and every nation on earth only have authority because it has been granted by God. There is no election, no coronation, no inauguration that has ever, ever, ever caught God by surprise. Look at verse 4 here. It says this, and it says it more than once. In verse 4, it says, For he, meaning the governing authority, is what? God's servant. God's servant. It also says in verse 6 that the authorities are God's ministers. And the word servant here is the same word, dikonos, where the church gets the word deacon. And so most accurately, this can be read that he is, verse 4, for he is God's deacon for your good. But if you do wrong, it says, be afraid. You see, the state's authority is for the good of the innocent, and the punishment and restraint of the wicked. God is using the governments of the earth and all their lesser magistrates under them to bring restraint over evil and wickedness in the world. And even in the most God-forsaken, tyrannical governments on earth, there is still a restraint of evil that's happening in those places. And the principle here is universal. It applies to every government, in every age, and in every time and place that has ever been before Romans 13 was written and will ever be after Romans 13 was written. And so let's look a little bit at the context. In Romans 12, verses 1 and 2, we have one of the biggest therefores in the Bible. 
Paul says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Now, If you've been in church for any length of time, you probably have heard the two big 12, 1, and 2 verses. Romans 12, 1, and 2, and Hebrews 12, 1, and 2. If you were ever in youth group, you heard them because those are two of the most favorite passages of Scripture in every youth group in history. All right? Present yourself a living sacrifice. Put off the sin that so easily ensnares you and run the race that's set before you. We've, we've heard those, right? Those are the two famous 12, 1 and 2 passages in the Bible. Romans 12, 1 and 2, I like to think of as a hinge. Romans 12, 1 and 2 is a giant hinge in the middle of the book of Romans. Because Romans 1 through 11 is Paul setting up all of the doctrinal and theological necessities of the gospel for us. And so you can look at Romans and you can see from Romans chapter 1 to Romans chapter 11, it is the gospel on display. It is doctrinal, it is theological, and Paul is setting up for us the only only way that we can live what he's about to tell us in Romans 12, 3 through chapter 16. So Romans 12, 1 and 2 is the hinge that connects Romans 1 through 11 and Romans 12, 3 through 16. And what does he say? He says, I beseech you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Now, when we used to learn this, it was, almost, um, it was almost like a millstone hung around the neck because it just left it unended because we, we stopped there. We would stop at verse 2 and it was kind of like it was on us as it's saying, you know, test and see what is the good and acceptable perfect will of God. And we're like, I don't know. How do I know the will of God? Let me help you. Keep reading And Paul tells you what is the good, acceptable, and perfect will of God. And so what does he do? Paul, from 12 verse 3 on through chapter 16, is actually explaining to us what is the tested, good, and perfect, acceptable will of God. And so from verse 3 of chapter 12 on through the rest of Romans, Paul begins to unpack for us how we are to practically live out the gospel in this life. Now, here's where we err. More often than not, we come to Romans 12, verse 3 through 16, and we ignore chapters 1 through 11. And if you would go and you would read chapters 1 through 11, this is what you would find out. You have no chance of keeping... Romans 12, 3 through chapter 16 without the reality of Romans 1 through 11. But we ignore that, and so what do we do? We go to the second half of all of Paul's letters, and we create a new law for ourselves where we say, okay, here's my checklist, this is what I've got to do, and we try to live out the therefores of the gospel divorced from the gospel, and I'm here to tell you, you cannot effectively, permanently do it. It's impossible. And so we have to understand that the only way we're to live out the therefores of the gospel, the implications of the gospel for us, is by resting firmly in what Christ has done for us and on our behalf. So we cannot get to Romans 13 without the gospel. Why? 
Because human nature is rebellious. Our hearts are idol-making factories. We are rebels by nature. And so when Paul comes along and he tells us, let every person be subject to the governing authorities over you, everything inside of us will fight against that and reject that unless we have been firmly planted in the gospel of Romans 1 through 11. Why? Because if we understand Romans 1 through 11, when we get to Romans 13, we understand that our subjection and obedience and submission to the government is as unto the Lord. Are you with me? So just like in Ephesians chapter 5, when Paul, again, in the therefores of the gospel, is talking about family life, and he says, wives, therefore, submit unto your husbands. It doesn't stop there, does it? What does it say? As unto the Lord. And where that is explicit in Ephesians chapter 5, it is implicit here. That Paul is taking for granted that we didn't fast forward to Romans chapter 13, but we have an understanding of Romans 1 through 11, and we know that our subjection and obedience and submission to the authority that's over us is unto the Lord. Your submission to the leaders in the church is unto the Lord. And again, they have no authority except that which God has granted them. Are, are you with me? This, this flows from the top of the top down to the lowest of the low. And all of our obedience in between as believers is meant to be not simply because we should do it, but because we are in submission to our God and King Jesus Christ who has called us, therefore, to live in submission to the governing authorities that he has placed over us. Well, what if you don't like them? Well, let me tell you something. It doesn't matter. <laughs> I've had the unique and distinct privilege of spending time living in a country that's ruled by a dictator. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if you like them or not. It doesn't matter if you think that they are exercising their authority rightly or not. What matters is that God, through his word, has called you to live in subjection to the governing authorities over you. So without the reality of Romans 1 through 11, Romans 12 through 16 is impossible for us. And the only way that you are going to live in subjection to an authority that you don't like is if you are living first and foremost in submission and subjection to God. Now grab the implication from the text. What does it say? It says, therefore, verse 2, whoever resists the authorities resists what? What God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment. The implication of that being that when you resist the authorities that God has placed over you, you will reap God's judgment. That's the implication. It's not simply talking about the judgment of that government. It's talking about God's wrath itself. Kids, that goes for you and your parents. Because the same thing applies. Church, that goes for you and the leaders that are placed over you. When you reject the authority that God has placed over you, you will incur God's judgment because of that. What about the cross? Praise God, your penalty for sin has been, has been paid. You will incur no more eternal penalty for your sin. 
But what does Hebrews tell us about God's love for his people? He disciplines those he loves. Now, that doesn't mean that God's on his way to break your legs. Unless it's necessary. In that case, it will be the most loving breaking of legs that has ever taken place. Now, we laugh. Now, I'm seriously, God will do what he's got to do to get your attention. Plain and simple. But God's not after you in the sense of wanting to strike you with lightning like Martin Luther supposed. But as a loving father, he disciplines those he loves. And he will only allow his children to exist in rebellion for so long. He will deal with patience. And he will deal with long-suffering. But for those who are truly his, he will discipline those he loves. And whether you can receive that this morning as a grace or not doesn't change the reality that it is a grace towards you. So something that we need to understand is that apart from the work of Christ alone applied to us by the Spirit because of the decree of the Father, apart from God's work from beginning to end in us, we cannot live out Romans 12 through 16. But the same Spirit who raised Christ from the dead can. Do you follow that? So apart from the work of God in our lives, we, we cannot... There is no way that we can effectively and permanently live out the therefores of Romans 12 through 16. But we rest on the fact that the same Spirit who raised Jesus Christ from the dead and now lives and dwells in us and gives life to this mortal body can. He can. That's why... The fruit of the Spirit in Galatians chapter 5 is called the fruit of the Spirit and not the fruit of the Christian. Because all of the things that come, love, peace, joy, patience, kindness, gentleness, self-control, and all nine of them, all of those are not being produced by me or by you, but they are being produced by the Spirit in us and through us. And so this subjection to governing authority, your obedience to your parents, to your boss, to church leaders, to lesser magistrates, to judges, to police officers, to the dog catcher, to the, to the neighborhood people that drive me crazy, that want to boss me around about my house, whatever they're called, the HOA, thank you, whoever it is, our obedience to them and our submission to them will only come as we are in submission to God and as the Holy Spirit works out that submission in us and through us. Which again, can only come through a willing submission to God in the first place. So if God is not your king, who will be? Ultimately. You, because you will reject all other authorities that you don't like or that rub you the wrong way or say the wrong thing to you or don't say it the right way. You will and I will reject. If not in action, in the intention and motivation of the heart, right? I'm sitting down, but I'm standing up on the inside. Okay. 
This is what we have to remember. We have not simply been freed from the penalty, power, and eventually the presence of sin. We have also been empowered by the Spirit to do what we could not do before. To live lives soli deo gloria for the glory of God alone. But living in submission to governing authorities is part and parcel of how we live that out. You're not paying your taxes. You're not being obedient to God. Fix it. It's not a question. It's not an option. Let's turn to 1 Peter 2. We're going to see this kind of stated a little bit differently. 1 Peter chapter 2, we'll start with verses 9 through 12. I want you to see that this is not just a Pauline idea, uh, meaning it's not just something that Paul said. This is what is actually taught through the whole Bible. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So Peter here calls believers sojourners. He calls them citizens of another land, which means that we are loyal to another king. Okay, so what then? So be honorable. Because I had the opportunity to live overseas, I had an opportunity to see people who were Americans, who lived in another land, who made me embarrassed, is the cleanest word I can come up with right now, to be an American. There are certain things that as a nation we, we hold to, that we hold to be dear and, and close to our hearts and in, in, in our nationalism as a country. And I would go overseas and I would see people acting un-American, if you will. And it made me so angry. Because do you know what it did? It made people hate Americans. And it made my life difficult. Why? Because I literally stood before a class and I had a young person stand up and say to me that he didn't give a rip what I said about the Bible because I was just a bloody American. Because that was how other Americans that he had known had acted in such a way that it gave him such disdain and distaste for anyone who was American that he just from the get-go couldn't accept what I had to say simply because I was American. That's an earthly example. Peter is saying that we do the same thing when we call ourselves the people of God, but we live in such a way that we blaspheme the name of God by holding to things that God condemns. By championing things that God condemns. We blaspheme the name of God. And we cause people to say, if that's what it means to be a part of God's family, the church, the body of Christ, I want nothing to do with it. Now, there are going to be times that people are going to reject you and persecute you for Jesus' namesake. Let them do that for his namesake, but don't let them do that for your namesake. God forbid that someone would reject Christ for Mike's namesake. 
They will reject Christ for His name's sake. They will reject you for His name's sake. And blessed are you when that happens. But don't let them reject Christ for your name's sake. Do you follow what I'm saying? Do you understand the implication of what I'm saying there? What did Gandhi say? You're Christ I love, but you're Christians. I could do without. Why? Because there was discrepancy between what he was seeing Jesus calling people to live and what they were actually living and what they were actually embracing. So Paul, so Peter says here, so be honorable. Be honorable. So how are you going to do that? Don't forget the first part of the sermon. How, how can we be honorable? I'm not honorable. I'm a wretch. I can't. But the Spirit can. And so what do we do? We walk by faith and not by sight. might mean that we probably have to pray a little bit more. God, help me. I can't do this. You have to. You might have to repent. You might have to go to some of the authorities that we've rejected and repent. And then we rely on the Holy Spirit to produce in us what we cannot produce ourselves. So Peter goes on in verse 13. He says, Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme, or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. See again the repetition of that idea in Scripture, now by Peter, first by Paul. And what is he saying? That the governing authorities are not there for your, toward evil to you, but for your good. Right? They're there to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. Verse 15. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live then as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God, honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, and honor the emperor. So now he gives us three things. He's already told us to be honorable. He repeats that again, but then he says, submit, fear God, and honor the ruler. Submit, fear God, and honor the ruler. What does this mean? It means that we have to reestablish our dependence upon God as our sustainer rather than the government that we are under. This means that we have to look to God to be our provider rather than the government. We have to look to God to be the one who's going to take care of us rather than our government. And then in that submission and reliance and dependence upon Him, we can submit. Why? Because we're not trusting them, we're trusting God. Yes? And why can we do that? Because the only vote that truly counts is God's. That doesn't mean don't vote. It just means vote and know that the only vote that truly counts is God's. And recognize that you cannot change God's will or His purpose or His plan by voting. You cannot move the heart or the hand of God by voting. You can vote. And I think you should, as your conscience allows, you should vote. Because you've been given the freedom 
to be able to do that. Take advantage of it. But at the end of the day, lay your head down on your pillow and rest and sleep because you know that God is the one who's in control regardless of the outcome. So let's see where the Bible says that. And we're going to move quickly. You can probably write these down rather than turn there, but if you think you're fast enough, you can. Psalm 135, verse 6. Psalm 135, verse 6. Whatever the Lord pleases, He does. In heaven and on earth, in the seas and all the deeps, He it is who makes the clouds rise at the end of the earth, who makes lightnings for the rain, who brings forth the wind from His storehouses. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11. In Him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will. Isaiah 46, 9 through 10. This time the prophet. Isaiah 46, 9 through 10. Remember the former things of old, for I am God, there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose. So these three verses, Psalm 135, Ephesians 1, and Isaiah 46, is telling us very plainly that God is in the heavens and He does as He pleases. The end. God is in the heavens and He does as He pleases. There is nothing that's outside of His control. Daniel chapter 2, 20 through 21. Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness and the light dwells with him. Job 12, 18. He looses the bonds of kings and binds a waistcloth on their hips. So what does this mean? We, we pair this with the last three verses. God is in the heavens. He does as He pleases. And He is the one who chooses who will rule. Proverbs 21, verse 1. Now to the book of wisdom. Proverbs 21, verse 1. The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. Ezekiel 30, verse 10. Again, another one of the major prophets. If you ever want a trip, just read all the things that God told Ezekiel to do. Ezekiel 30, verse 10. Thus says the Lord God, I will put an end to the wealth of Egypt by the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. He and his people with him, the most uh, ruthless of nations, shall be brought in to destroy the land, and they shall draw their swords against Egypt and fill the land with the slain. Jump to verse 18. The day shall be dark when I break there the yoke Bars of Egypt and her proud might shall come to an end in her. She shall be covered by a cloud and her daughters shall go into captivity. And then to verse 24. 
and I will strengthen the arms of the king of Babylon and put my sword in his hand, but I will break the arms of Pharaoh and he will groan before him like a man mortally wounded. What's happening here? God is using one nation to exercise judgment over another nation and then God's going to turn around and judge the nation for dealing wickedly for the other nation. Does that sound a little bit like God's using the nations and the kings of nations like hammers and saws and screwdrivers and nut drivers and wrenches? Yes, that's exactly what it sounds like. Why? Because the governing authorities are a deacon, they are a servant, they are a tool in the hand of God. And God is the one who sits in the heavens and does as he pleases. Back to Isaiah chapter 14, 24 through 25. Not a lot of amens this morning, but that's okay. You can say ouch. The Lord of hosts has sworn, as I have planned, so shall it be. And as I have purposed, so it shall stand, that I will break the Assyrian in my land, and on my mountains trample him underfoot, and his yoke shall depart from them, and his burden from their shoulder. So God is in the heavens. He does as he pleases. He's the one that chooses the rulers, and he's the one who governs their deeds. What about the other nations that are freaking out on the other side of the world and, and missiles and things and exploding and stuff? God's in the heavens. He does as he pleases. He's the one who appoints the rulers and he's the one who dictates their deeds. And he is using the different nations of the earth to exercise judgment over the other nations. He's using them as a tool in his hand. Lastly, Psalm 33, verse 10. Just to make sure the point is driven home. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. Verse 11. But the counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart to all generations. Verse 12. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. The people whom he has chosen as his heritage. God is in the heavens. He does as he pleases. He's the one who appoints who will rule. He governs their deeds, and at the end of the day, even that nation's plans will crumble. They will be caused to crumble by God, and it is the plan and the will of God that will stand in His, in His alone. Now, I wrestled over the last several weeks, and especially this last week, over this. Because frankly, I would much rather preach something else this morning than what I'm preaching to you right now. But I have witnessed in my own heart and in the words of others, even within this congregation and throughout our community in our nation. a propensity towards allowing our rest and our joy to be dictated over whether or not the candidate that we want to win will win. Instead of letting our hope in our joy, in our rest, be in the Lord. Now we can all get passionate about politics, and I don't, I don't, I don't, 
I don't care about that. Be passionate. I would say let your passions be dictated by the word of God. But many people have twisted scripture to their own ends. But at the end of the day, after all of your passion for politics, my prayer is that collectively our passion for our true king would vastly outweigh how much we care about what happens to this great and awesome nation that we live in today. John Calvin said, when God wants to judge a nation, he gives them wicked rulers. And in Romans chapter 1, a sign of God's judgment is when God turns a people over to their own desires. In a couple days, collectively, we will elect our own judgment. Now, this is a little bit of Mike's commentary. There is a biblical mandate for how you're to choose people to rule other, over other people. And it's what Moses exercised when he chose rulers over thousands and over hundreds and over tens. And there's two basic things. Let them fear God and not take a bribe. And the top four contenders in our political race today, not one of them pays more than lip service to the God of the universe. Which means we will elect for ourselves based on the choices that are there, which are more than two, by the way, we will elect for ourselves someone who does not fear God. Now, still, on Tuesday night, we should lay our heads down on our pillows and we should rest and we should sleep and we should celebrate and praise that we serve a sovereign God who's sovereign over it all. And I don't believe that we should allow that to affect our joy. However, it should cause us to call out to God for forgiveness. It should cause us to mourn that by and large, the church in the United States has abandoned its post. Not in how we have voted, but in how we have lived in between each vote. And so, with joy, because I know that God is in control that he sits on his throne, that nothing can happen except what he has decreed. With joy, I, I will carry on. But as an American, I will mourn. Do you see the two, the sojourn versus the citizen? As a citizen in the kingdom of God, I rejoice because my God is on his throne and no one can take him from it. And my security and my provision and everything that I need, every, everything I need, my God shall supply. I'm, I'm, all my hope is in him. What, what hope do we have in this life or the next? that we belong to our God and to our Savior, Jesus Christ. So that's as a citizen of 
this kingdom. I, I rejoice regardless of what happens on Tuesday. But as a sojourner who's in exile in this nation, regardless of what happens, I'm mourning. Because we will, by our own choice, elect a ruler who does not fear God. Which is an indication that our nation is, in fact, under judgment. And as a nation under judgment, we must repent. And we must pray and ask God to give us the gift of repentance. And this must start here. It is not a sign that we put on a picket and raise to a godless nation to tell them that they must repent first and foremost. It is a sign that we must write down and look at ourselves every single day and say, I must repent. We must repent. Only then can we call our nation to repentance. And so in this time, our call is to obey whom God has sovereignly chosen. And to cry out to God for mercy for ourselves and for our nation. And so I want you to see what Peter says at the end of this little part in chapter 2, verses 18 through 25, and we're going to wrap up. He says, servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. Now he's talking to servants in regards to their masters, but again, the principle flows from the top all the way down to the bottom, which means what? That even when the rulers are unjust, we still must be subject to them. Verse 19. For this is a gracious thing when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. So let me tell you what's going to happen in a nation that's under judgment and with rulers who do not fear God. If this continues in this direction, eventually persecution will come publicly for the church of Jesus Christ. And it will be both good and bad. It will be bad because it will hurt. It will be good because it will purify the church of Jesus Christ. Because those who are around just paying lip service to Jesus because of what they think they might get as a benefit as a result, the pain that the government will cause them will vastly outweigh whatever benefit they thought they were receiving and they will leave. And this is good for the church. Why? Because when one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly, it is a gracious thing that God is mindful of. What, what is God looking for in the midst of this time? He's not looking for people who are running around trying to make him do something. He's looking for people who are first and foremost in submission to him, who obey him at all costs and not sacrifice what God has commanded them to do for the sake of what they hope they can get God to do. Verse 20. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? The implication is none. But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called. And this is the church's great opportunity in times like this. Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his footsteps. He committed no sin, 
Neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. So what is this great opportunity in a time like this? We have, a time, we have an opportunity in a way that has not existed for us as a nation collectively in a really long time. We have an opportunity to suffer along with our Lord. We have an opportunity to suffer for His namesake. And in suffering, to glory in the cross of Jesus Christ alone. To cling to the cross instead of wrapping ourselves in a flag. Now, is there ever a time to disobey ruling authorities? Yes. And when is that time? When they command us to do something that is disobedience to God, or when they command us not to do something that is obedience to God. And so what do we do? Now, as much as it depends on us, we live at peace with all men. We submit to the governing authorities over us, recognizing that they would not have any power unless God had given it to them. And so we submit until they command us to do something that goes against what God has commanded us to do. And then we righteously rebel. As the apostle said in Acts chapter 4, it is better for us to obey God than to listen to you. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. And I thank you that God, it informs every area of our life. And as we walk into this next week, God, I pray that our hope, that our satisfaction everything that we hold dear would be resting in who you are and what you have done for us. That you would, God, do such a work in our hearts that our citizenship in your kingdom would be reaffirmed. That our loyalty would rest upon Christ as our king and not any Caesar. But God, that you would also, by your Spirit, empower us to live as we're called to live, as sojourners and exiles in this nation. God, we thank you for the freedoms that you have granted us here. We thank you for every person who has fought and bled and died so that we can have them. But God, we recognize that our true freedom comes from the blood of Jesus Christ and no other. Teach us what it means to live in this way, to live in this place and to live in this time to be fully satisfied in you and yet to mourn with righteous mourning and to repent as a nation. God, grant us joy. Grant us repentance. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to come to the table.
And in coming to the table, we are going to remember the Lord's body and His blood until He comes. Recognizing that our freedom comes at the price of Jesus' death, His burial, and His resurrection. It's His body which was broken for us. It was His blood which was shed for our sin. For without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness of sin. There would be no freedom without the blood of Jesus. And so this morning, I invite you to come. I invite you to partake of the table. The Lord's Supper is for believers. It is for those whose allegiance belongs to Christ. And if that is you, I invite you to come. I invite you to eat. I invite you to drink. You are welcome at the table of the Lord this morning. Father, we thank you for the bread which represents your broken body and for the blood, the wine which represents your blood. God, let us not eat and drink damnation to ourselves today, but God, rather let us examine ourselves. Let us in our hearts this morning pray the prayer of David when he said, God, search me and know me inside and out. See if there is any wicked way within me and lead me in the paths of righteousness. God, let us come knowing that in the blood of Jesus every sin has been forgiven. And we stand now clean because of the blood of Jesus. These things we pray in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. God bless you as you come.